You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. He had fantasized that he would smuggle Gita back across the shining sea and bring her close to the accountants who calculated calorie burn quotas for the world. Close to the calories, as she had said, once so long ago. Close to the men who balanced price stability against margins of error and protectively managed energy markets against a flood of food. Close to those small gods with more power than Kali to destroy the world. But she was dead by now, whether through starvation or disease, and he was sure of it. And wasn't that why Shriram had come to him? Shriram, who knew more of his history than any other? Shriram, who had found him after he arrived in New Orleans and known him for a fellow countryman? Not just another Indian long settled in America, but one who still spoke the dialects of desert villages and who still remembered their country as it had existed before Gene Hack Weevil, Leaf Curl, and Root Rust. Shriram, who had shared a place on the floor while they both worked the winding sheds for calories and nothing else, and were grateful for it, as though they were nothing but gene hacks themselves. Of course Shriram had known what to say to send him upriver. Shriram had known how much he wished to balance the imbalanceable. Paolo Bacigalupi published his first short story, Pocketful of Dharma, in 1999. His story, The Fluted Girl, was a Sturgeon finalist in 2003, the People of Sand and Slag was a Hugo and Nebula nominee in 2004. His story, The Calorie Man, was nominated for a Hugo and won the Sturgeon Award. Yellow Card Man was a Hugo and Sturgeon Award finalist and Asimov's Award winner. His first book, Collecting These Stories, is Pump Six from Nightshade Books with publisher Jeremy Lassen. Thank you for joining me, Paolo. Thank you. And Jeremy. Great to be here. Paolo, let's talk about you as a writer. Did you write as a child? I actually wasn't much of a writer as a child. I, I really only started seriously writing after I got out of college. Tell us a little bit about how you, what you did in college that made you, led you to start writing afterwards. I think it actually wasn't really what was happening in college. It was actually when I was working, soon after I graduated, I was working for a technology company, and, and I was depressed. And I hated the work that I was doing, and I started writing as an escape from from what I was doing in my day job, basically. And so I wrote on weekends. What sort of uh, thing did you write? At that time, I was writing sort of science fiction adventure stories. That was really all I was trying to do was write something that was fun and quick and exciting, I guess. And that was really, I, at the time, I sort of had this, this vision that, oh, gee, someday I'm going to write this novel. And, I'm, and at one point, I actually, in my great sense of ego, <laughs> thought I would be writing a, uh, selling a book by the time I was 25. And when I started writing, I basically thought of myself as going to be that young, wonderkind sort of writer who was going to do everything and, you know, sell everything. And instead, I ended up writing for a really long time and never selling much of anything. Did you try to sell some of your first uh, science fiction adventure stories? I did. And the first thing that really worked was Pocketful of Dharma. I originally started out writing novels, and that was where my all my energy was. And then I had met William Gibson at one point. I had uh, stalked him at a signing. I stood over his shoulder and peppered him with questions as he was signing other people's books. And I know I was this completely needy writer who was asking him, oh, please, you know, tell me how did you get published and what did you do? And, 
And he, his main response was, well, I wrote enough short stories until someone took me seriously, and then I was able to sell a novel. And I sat with that for a little while and went, okay, I just need to write some short stories then. And so that was really the beginning of me actually getting my, my writing uh, career together. <laughs> Tell us about the novels you wrote before you wrote the, the short stories. What sort of novels were they? The first novel I wrote was a science fiction novel. That one was rejected by a bunch of science fiction publishers because it was way too dark. And my personal favorite was one, one editor who rejected it because, quote, as a mother, this disturbs me, unquote. And that was, you know, I sort of felt good that I'd, you know, managed to at least shake somebody up, but it wasn't particularly satisfying in the monetary sense. Then I, after that, I actually went and wrote a historical fiction novel set in China, Shanghai, up the Yangtze River Valley. It was all about opium smugglers and, and gangsters and uh, sort of global trade sort of things, I guess. And then after that, I wrote a more of a landscape literary fiction novel all about Western Colorado where I grew up and about the sort of the landscapes out there and, and people populating it. And then the last book that I wrote was actually a mystery slash Western, sort of a postmodern take on a Western with a cowboy who has to manage a ranch for a very rich movie star. And so all of those were, were different things that I tried out in the novel space. So you wrote these four novels before you even sat down to write a short story? I wrote, no, let's see. Okay, I wrote the first novel. I wrote the science fiction novel. And then I wrote one short story. I wrote Pocket Full of Dharma. And I had instant success with Pocket Full of Dharma. That one went out and it sold immediately. And Gordon Van Gelder put it on the cover of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And I thought, aha, here I am. I've arrived. And then I proceeded to not write any more short stories for something like four more years. I wrote these, all these different novels, all in different genres, and basically sort of wandered away from science fiction. And... Uh, it was only after I had written all of these novels and not sold any of them that I sat down and thought, well, I actually sort of liked writing science fiction, and I actually had some success writing short science fiction. Gee, maybe I ought to go back to that and try it again. You know, the one door that opened for me a little bit, maybe I should lean on that door. And and so that's really, so then I went and wrote The Fluted Girl and and started pushing my way in more, and then I wrote a series of short stories afterwards, and each one of those seems to have each one of those has garnered a certain amount of attention. Not just attention. These have gone, each of them almost has, everything you've published practically has been nominated for one sort of <laughs> prize or another. This, this is unusual, even in the science fiction world. It feels good to be recognized for what you're writing. That's, you know, wonderful. It's also a little bit strange and a little bit disconcerting, especially after writing so much for so long that really wasn't doing anything of note. And then to suddenly kaboom, hit, with the Fluta Girl and then the People of Sand and Slag and then these other stories that suddenly there was a lot of attention and all the attention, I, you know, being nominated for something like the Hugo Award with only a couple of short stories under my belt was, was a, a, both a delight and also a shock and sort of a terrifying shock in a way. Could you talk a little bit about the science fiction world? Did you start attending science fiction conventions and join the, the writing groups of Science Fiction Writers of America? Did any of that, did you appeal to you or did you get into that? I no, I've never I've never actually been connected much with the science fiction community. That's only happened very recently that I've actually started to interact with other science fiction writers or other science fiction fans. 
I grew up reading science fiction. My father was a science fiction reader. My grandfather was actually a science fiction reader. The first book I ever read in science fiction was Citizen of the Galaxy by Heinlein, and it was actually my grandfather's copy of the book that I read. I live in a very, very small town, and I am completely cut off from most of the sort of either fan or professional activity that happens in science fiction. And so it was only after I'd started selling the short stories and started getting nominated for the awards that my editor at Magazine Fantasy and Science Fiction, Gordon Van Gelder, suggested that I actually go and attend a convention and actually meet other professionals. And that was sort of a, a whole world opening up in front of me that, that I actually could have you know, friends who are writers. As a, a science fiction writer, it's a different uh, deal than any other form of writing. I mean, you, you, one of the things that you've done pretty successfully, I think, is, and one of the things that science fiction writers have to do is create worlds to play around in. And, and I think you, you did this really well with the people of Sand and Slag and the Calorie Man and the Yellow Card Man. There's a little bit of a continuum in there, and I, the, the final two stories are actually set in the same world. Could you talk about creating a world? Do you do this in advance, and like, do you have a, a set of notes about this world? My story process has changed a little bit as I've gotten more conscious of what I'm doing. But yeah, you're right. Science fiction basically has tools no other genre has. Um, everybody thinks about science fiction as being that rocket ships and ray guns sort of genre. And you can have that in science fiction, but that's not what interests me. What interests me about science fiction is that essentially your setting, your world, becomes a, a reinforcer of of the concepts that you're working with. So you work with your plot, which reinforces certain ideas. Your characters reinforce certain ideas. And then the setting is actually an incredibly malleable component of the entire story. So in science fiction, if I'm interested in talking about genetically modified crops, I can say in The Calorie Man, I can create a world where energy companies are calorie companies, very much like something like Monsanto. And those companies rule the world, and they own everything. And so what I get to do is I get to create a world which is related to what we see in today's world, but is an extrapolation out of that. And that's something that you can't do with any other genre to say, okay, here's something that I see going on, and now I'm going to sort of put it on steroids and really crank up the volume on it and see what it looks like in this different format. And so what I do a lot of times is I try to find a way to make that setting sort of reinforce the overall experience of the story in very specific ways. With The Calorie Man, I was thinking a lot about genetically modified foods, but also genetically modified organisms and sort of our role in that new set of technologies. And so I introduce a, a re-engineered cat that is more successful than regular cats, and it's killed off all of the bird populations. And, you know, that you get to do something like that in science fiction, and you can play with an idea like, what does GM technology mean to us? Well, let's take a look and play with this a little bit. And so that's what I'm, you know, trying to do with my world building. Um, does that answer your question? It, it starts to. <laughs> do, do you do writing outside of the stories that you then use as a superstructure to build the stories on? Do you take notes? Do you like have a description in this world has these properties or write about the cities or something, have a series of notes or, or a database, for example? No, it's much more organic than that. I'll actually start brainstorming and I'll actually start writing out a scene. And oftentimes in the beginning of it, I just know that I want to play with a certain idea. Sometimes it takes me a while to even figure out what idea I'm playing with, and so it's, it's, a, it's a slow process for me. I'm a very, very slow writer. But 
I'll eventually I'll get to a point where I sort of know that I want to write about an idea and I'll start to feel it out and I'll start to brainstorm and just free write essentially writing I'll write thousands of words where it's just a character wandering around in the world as I build things and come up with things what's this character see what's this character run into oh that would make sense that's how I should make the houses be built oh that's what kinds of animals should be around the character and I sort of populate it on the fly and I'll look at what I've got then and maybe I'll set all that aside and start again and do it again until I got enough components that all seem to come fit in some sort of coherent way and then I can take those and actually write the scenes that I need to write. But it's, it's, it's sort of a brainstorming and free association process in the beginning. One of the things that's interesting about science fiction stories is what I call kind of either the mystery or the reveal. And, and you do a really good job in your stories at the, what I call the reveal. The People of Sand and Slag is a, a great example of that because when you start the story, we're presented with characters, and we just presume they're, they're people, they have arms and legs. But as the story proceeds, we start to find out, well, maybe they're not the kind of humans we're used to talking about. Right. That's uh, there's something really powerful about those sets of reveals. And in The People of Sand and Slag, for the first set of reveals is sort of, hey, I'm going to present you, and I do this a lot with my stories, I'm going to present you with a world that looks like your own. You think you know what's going on in it. And then you start dropping clues into the world that maybe these people aren't the same. They jump out of an airplane and they hit the ground and they break themselves and they heal very quickly. Um, and the, the characters don't notice it or remark on it that, oh, gee, I just broke my femur and now I'm up and running again. What's going on? And so with science fiction, you have this opportunity to drop question marks into the, into the storyline that say, oh, wait, something's not right. This isn't normal. What's going on? And then you read a little further and, oh, wait, I think I do understand. These people have been re-engineered. Okay, so what are these re-engineered people doing? Oh, they're just military people. Okay, so this is an action story. No, wait, we're going to do another thing with this now. We're going to have them run into an unmodified creature. These, and then how are they going to interact with it? And, and so at each stage you get, to, you get to play with these sort of dropping question marks into the storyline. And you know, hopefully that, that, that process of getting the reader to that moment at the very end where they think, aha, that they never saw it coming at all, that they, that they were led very carefully all the way in that moment when, when the final reveal occurs so that, that that final sort of enlightenment moment, if you will, um, can be very powerful in science fiction. One of the things that I find really interesting as well is the idea, and you do this a couple of times, you will create a future, and the people of the, that future or the reader and experiencing that future will be able to look back upon our present and think, boy, the world we live in right now is even more mind-boggling than this weird science fiction world. <laughs> you create a future that's, that's strange and different from ours, and, and the reader experiences it as, as really unusual and, and thrilling. Mm -hmm. But then you have the characters in that world look back on our present mm. and, and think of our present as being even more incredible than the world they're in, the future they're in, which is a really kind of a, a way to, to switch back the reader. And then we look around at our world and say, wow, we really do live in a strange world. Okay. There's something about, okay, this is, I think, you know, when I think about what influences what I write the most. Probably the thing that influenced me the most was that I was uh, an East Asian studies major. I studied Chinese language and I lived outside of the country for a while. Um, I lived in China. I worked in China. When I came back from that experience, walking around inside of the United States 
where all the rules that I had thought were normal suddenly weren't. Um, and the best example I have of this really is that I went into a park one day soon after I was back from China, and there were all of these rodents running around on the ground in the grass. And I kept thinking, why doesn't anybody get rid of these? Why can't somebody just get rid of these rodents? And I suddenly thought, my God, they're squirrels. And in that moment where you realize that the thing that you used to take for granted was normal suddenly became alien. Um, that feeling is something that I've carried into my writing a lot. And, and I carry that lens. And when I think about writing science fiction, I think about science fiction as being a way to sort of put on a lens to wear a different tint of glasses, basically, and to look at the world and say, oh, I thought this was normal. I thought my day-to-day -day life was normal. But now I realize that it's constructed, and it's arbitrarily constructed. And nothing can be taken for granted. You can, you, we've taken it for granted out of habit, but that it's not absolutely normal. It's simply habitual. And, and there's something really powerful about that ability for you to write in science fiction and say, hey, put on these glasses. This world is not what you think it is. You're, you have a, a theme that I see cropping up in your book stories again and again, body modification people carving themselves up, people being carved up, being re-engineered. What's the matter with you? <laughs> oh, I think my wife would say that's just a sign that I'm a misanthrope. Um, I, you know, honestly, I don't know what that is. I, I, I can't even, there's, there's, I, I've noticed the theme myself, and I've actually, well, why, am I, why am I chopping up all these people? And what's this, what's going on here? But I haven't actually, like, I haven't delved deep into it. You, the other thing that you do is that um, your science fiction is very socially aware. It's very, it, it's issue oriented science fiction, and I wonder if you'd care to talk about where you where you find your issues. I know that you're good friends with an environmental scientist, Michelle. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm good friends with an environmental journalist named Michelle Nyhouse. She's actually this powerhouse writer, um, and she goes out and she does a lot of research on environmental issues and then writes up the stories. She'll write about global warming, or she'll write about endocrine disruptors, or she'll write about uh, invasive species, things like that. And someone like that who goes out, a journalist goes out and really spends a lot of time digging around in the sort of the data pool, basically, about what's going on inside of our environment. She, she tends to be sort of the, the person who she goes out and sounds out information that then I can sit around and think, now, what does that really mean for us? If, if really we're looking, about, looking at these species dying in this particular way, or if we're looking at food webs unraveling, you know, what does that look like? What does that mean for us? And so, yeah, people like Michelle are profoundly stimulating people to be around. They're also kind of depressing because they know more information than you really want to know. Uh, another person, there's a scientist named Theo Colborn who uh, actually lives down the street from me. For some reason, this small town that I live in seems to be this hotbed of, of different environmental scientists and environmental journalists. There's a, another scientist named Michael Soule who's the father of conservation biology. And so I've read a bunch of stuff that has to do with conservation biology because of this you know, other connection. And, and it's really, you know, these, these different people and these different thinkers all around me mean that um, I have access to their, their sort of insights into the events of today. And then that gives me, gives me material to extrapolate from. So. Your stuff is really kind of a downer. It's not, 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 not stuff that you read. to. It's not a, not a cheer you up kind of 
fiction. How do you feel about doing that? And have you considered the? Do you consider your effect <laughs> on the reader when you do write like this? Let's see. I've got a bunch of different things about that. Actually, one of them is when you're writing about a topic that's that's of particular power. Um, when I'm writing about something like. Uh, genetically modified foods, or if I'm writing about endocrine disruptors, um, some of these things are really scary. And endocrine disruptors particularly has been on my mind a lot. I have a four-year-old son and uh, living next to Theo Colburn, who does all this research into the horrors of whatever bisphenol A can do or whatever an estrogen mimic can do to, do to your child is, is, it's like, it's living next to a nightmare, basically. That's what you're really doing, is living next to somebody who can constantly make you paranoid about the entire world around you. Um, so when I'm sitting down to write a story that's going to touch on the idea of endocrine disruptors, um, the question of whether or not you're going to write consolatory fiction comes up, um, and whether or not you're going to write a story that says to the reader, essentially, everything is fine, you can go back to business as normal. Um, or are you going to write a story that says, think, we don't know, or think, maybe we really don't like the path we're on. And to, to write a story I, I have some concerns about writing a story that's too consolatory. In a lot of cases, the characters that I have will, they're fine at the end of their story. They go on with their lives, but the reader will be left with some things to ponder. Um, and I want that sense of pondering to be there. Um, I don't honestly think of them automatically as being depressing stories um, or downer stories, but I do think about them as being ponderable stories. Um, we have choices about where we're going to go in our futures. And it's worth pondering which choices we're going to actually select. And I hope that by illustrating potential routes, that that gives us something to seriously think about. Your story, The People of Sand and Slag, is a really powerful story on a, on a number of levels. And one of the things that really makes us think is what, what does it mean to be human? And that's a, another theme that you come to. Y you look pretty damn human to me. Yeah. <laughs> Why are you worried about it? With the people of Sand and Slag, one of the things I've thought about a lot is that we're essentially, we have evolved in concert with our entire environment. We are uniquely adapted to the world as we exist, as it exists now. We, we, we evolved uh, synced to everything about it. It is such a forgiving space for us to be growing up in, and yet, and you can see that. I mean, you can see that we've spread and multiplied. We've been very successful inside of this environment that we've got. But one of the things about when I'm writing The People of Sand and Slag that I'm thinking about is that as eventually we are becoming separated also from essentially the inputs that have made us very comfortable and very happy. And as we get more and more separated from those things, what are you at the end of that? With The People of Sand and Slag, I'm really interested in the idea that there's a triumphalist quality to a lot of technology think, I guess is the best way to describe it. And, you know, and, and particularly it's the idea that, hey, we, you know, let's, uh, hey, we're clever humans. We can solve problems. We're smart little monkeys. And so we're going to solve problems with technology because that's what we do. And that's what we've done for hundreds of years. We are really cool at this. And... What I decided to do with this story was to play with the idea of our masterfulness to, in effect, give us all of the possibilities and say, yeah, we are totally competent. We can totally 
fix our problems. Um, we don't need to worry about pollutants because we'll figure out a way to deal with them. We don't need to worry about, you know, where we're going to get our food next because we're going to figure out a way to deal with that. And, and so what I create is a world where we've solved all of the technological problems. And the result of that, though, is that not that we solve these in wise ways, but that we solve these in expedient ways. Honestly, if I think about what it means to be human, it means to pursue the expedient path rather than the wise path. That would be, you know, if I think about all of my stories together, that's the thing that comes to me the most about what I see about the, the true nature, nature of human, uh, the true quality of human nature is to choose the quick and dirty solution. And so, yeah, I guess that, that's, that's the, the thing that comes to me the most. And it's something that I'd like us to think more about is like, what's the wise solution rather, rather than the quick and dirty solution? With the yellow card man and the calorie man, you've created a world where monocultures and genetically modified crops have essentially changed the way we've lived. Could you talk about the way you designed that world based upon what you know? I... So I live in this very small town. It's a very rural area. There are a lot of organic farmers around where I live. And the organic farming community is very interested in the idea of what, what sorts of seed stocks are they using, how do they raise their crops, all of these different things. And, and their big bugaboo is, is big ag. It's the, it's the Monsantos. It's the, the major calor, uh, calorie companies here. I'm using my own vocabulary. It's the major, major agricultural companies that put out you know, they have tons, thousands and thousands of acres of corn and soy under production, but it's all either Roundup Ready or it's all one specific type of hybridized soy so that, you know, you can get your best yield. You know, we have a long tradition of genetic tinkering. That's why we've got the crops we've got today. But there's this extra layer where, where we really start to, start to get crazy and start saying, hey, let's make, our, make all of our crops pesticide resistant and so that we can dump more pesticides on them so that we can kill all of the insects that we're dealing with. And then we're going to have insects that are pesticide resistant as well. And I guess, I, I don't know, I started out talking to my friends who are farmers and, and talking about and hearing their concerns. And then I come across news stories every so often. I come across a news story about something like the Terminator gene, which shows up in this, in this story, which is a, an actual technology that was developed by food companies to make sure that crops couldn't be replanted. And they shelved the technology, but the technology is there. And, and you know, I take these two ideas that you say, oh, gee, here are these organic farmers sort of already feeling besieged, sort of. And then you take these big companies that are saying, hey, this is the only way forward is to buy our product repeatedly year after year with never any opportunity to actually replant any of the seed that we actually you've produced. And, you know, it's essentially food as a service rather than food as something that's sort of a, if you will, a God-given right of the earth. Um, and those are really, you know, interesting paradigms to sort of see up against each other. And I think that that was the beginning of, of thinking about the calorie man and yellow card man was that conflict between these two different views of food and energy and where we get them and, and how we control them. Now, as a writer, here you are. You, you've won multiple awards. You've been nominated for multiple awards. You have a, a, a batch of short stories under, under your belt. But un, alas, this is not going to pay the rent. It might not even make a car payment. It might not even buy a bag of groceries. <laughs> is that the case? Yeah, that's, that's exactly the case. This is, it's labor of love. A lot of this stuff, I, I write it. I mean, the, you're paid in pennies a word. You're, 
your work is more valuable as someone who works at McDonald's, then, you know, that's the way society values the work, certainly, is if I spend an hour working at McDonald's versus an hour working on a story, I'm making so much more, more money. My family is more secure if I work at McDonald's than if I, than if I work at, at writing. So, yeah, the stories themselves don't pay the rent. They don't do anything like that. But they're, they're satisfying in their own right. Now, one of the most people who have their first book published, it's generally a, a, a novel. And, and But you're fortunate enough to have your stories collected. And we have here with us today your publisher, Jeremy Lassen. He's with Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining them in, in us, Jeremy. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be here. Uh, Jeremy, uh, talk about the publishing climate. Uh, here's a guy who's got um, all these awards under his belt, but if he takes his batch of short stories to New York. He's not going to get a lot of attention, is he? No, the the large New York conglomerates and their science fiction imprints are geared towards, you know, a certain numerical threshold. They're geared towards the upper end of, you know, selling 20, 30, 50,000 copies of a work. And even within the genre, even within the science fiction genre where there's a long tradition of short fiction, where it's still kind of core to you know the ideas and the dialogue between the readers and writers, there is not a, a good paying market or or even a huge consumer class of short fiction. So those large publishers don't don't focus on collections. Twenty years ago, they focused more than they do now, and twenty years ago, writers were complaining about it then. So there's a lot of opportunity in the marketplace for smaller publishers who, if they're able to kind of point out the high points of short fiction and say, well, this guy is really doing cutting-edge stuff or is an important part of the genre dialogue. You know, if I can make that case for a collection, I can do, I can do okay with it because I don't have the huge overhead that a large publisher does, and I can sell fewer copies and still have it be a profitable part of my business plan. You know, it's interesting, actually, because the whole the whole idea that I'm, I'm sort of surprised that short stories don't do better um, in the marketplace because it sort of seems like it's the perfect format now for a very sped up culture, um, essentially. Here, take a hit of a short story. This thing will, you know, give you all of the wow, bang excitement of of story, of character, of plot, and it'll give you a takeaway that's really interesting, and you can do it in about an hour <laughs> instead of, oh, yeah, you're going to be slogging through this novel for the next couple of days or something. And it's funny. I, I sort of almost feel like there should be a new renaissance for short fiction because of the, the, the immediacy of it. Jeremy? Yeah, I think, you know, maybe different bits of culture. I think the Internet culture and on-screen reading culture um, – lends itself at least to a certain class of white-collar workers, you know, already read quite a bit of flash bits of information between breaks at work or between the productive bits at work. And so I think, you know, short fiction may lend itself to being consumed in that way. So it's kind of an interesting possibility of, you know, seeing how, how markets might develop. Jeremy, could you talk a little bit about your business model? You're... It's you and a partner, and you're taking on companies that have been around for almost 100 years. Well, we've been around for 10 years, and we've constantly been focusing on the bits of the market that the larger publishers um, don't care about and don't focus on. It's it's not a big enough market. The conglomeratization, the kind of you know focus on the, the blockbuster model, 
um, has been in progress for a long time. These these media companies that you know sell movies and sell music and also sell books have um, different profit expectations, and so they focus on the books that are going to sell you know a lot of copies. They focus on the bestseller market, and they do that very well. They make and promote bestsellers really well, but that doesn't do the mid list much good. Um, I got started in the retail end of things as a bookseller, and, you know, there's that, you know, kind of complaint among readers like, oh, they're not publishing the good stuff anymore, and they're just publishing, you know, commercial stuff that doesn't appeal to me. And rather than be somebody who complains about it, I decided to try and do something about it. And I started out with, you know, very modest expectations. It was a side thing. It was something I did, you know, wasn't my day job. But the marketplace keeps on giving me more and more opportunities, you know, I've People Man. actually like stories that say something interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's that tension in genre. Do you say something new or do you say something that the readers find comforting and are going back to get that same experience? And that tension, particularly within genre, is you know something that I can do really well. I can give that it seems sort of familiar, but it's very new experience that you know maybe larger publishers, you know that very new experience doesn't have a big enough, you know, audience yet. So I can be on the cutting edge of things, um, you know, like with Paolo. So the Thanks, oppor- <laughs> those opportunities in the marketplace just keep getting bigger and bigger. I keep getting access to, to, you know, I'm publishing writers now that, you know, 10 years ago when I've, you know, a company of my size would never have been able to touch. And, you know, in a very, very tough book selling environment, you know, my company's been growing year after year you know, both in number of titles and in, you know, total sales. And, you know, we weren't something that was funded, you know, with venture capitalists or anything like that. We were funded kind of organically with my credit cards and my business partner's credit cards and, you know, just kind of like wanted to do that more than we wanted a new car or fancy toys or whatever. It was just this is what we wanted to do. And my my view of the publishing industry is that in the, you know, in the early 20s, there was like a revolution. You know, the nature of publishing changed when people like Alfred Knopf and Cerf, who founded Random House, you know, kind of like threw out the old guard and redefined what was possible and the way they went about things. It was like a major shakeup in the publishing industry. And I think you're starting to see the beginnings of those tremors now. Most of the media conglomerates who own both publishing companies and media companies, back in the 80s, there was the idea of synergy of like there'll be crossover and, you know, the sum will be greater than its parts. And the trend now is for these media companies to be divesting themselves of their publishing arm. And the trend now is for companies that focus exclusively on publishing. Uh, Time Warner just sold off their book publishing division to a French conglomerate that only focuses on publishing. And I think you're going to see more and more companies that focus exclusively on books. Is this Hachette? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. And they just opened up a new science fiction imprint in the United States called Orbit. Yeah. And, you know, very, very aggressive push into that market, a push that under Time Warner management, you know, their science fiction imprint had been, you know, contracting. So it was a different culture from a company that is focused exclusively on books. Paolo, could you talk about the opportunities available for you now with a short story collection published in hardcover, available in chain bookstores around the world? You have more opportunities now to be, as a writer, to seek publication, don't you? 
Yeah, it's actually, it makes a big difference. Um, one of the things that, that putting out a short story collection, especially the way that Nightshade has done it, where it's, you know, it's a very much a prestige collection sort of thing that is coming out in hardcover that's not something that you just sort of toss off. This isn't any self-published sort of like, you know, doohickey. Um, it means that, um, it means a couple of different things. For me, Personally, the thing that strikes me is that I finally have a spot where I can say, this is what I do. It's not just a story that appeared in a magazine somewhere and will disappear tomorrow. Um, when people ask me about what I write, I used to be able to say, well, yeah, I wrote this story last year. Um, hmm, uh, maybe I can dig up a copy of the magazine somewhere and show you. Um, and now just to be able to say, hey, look, this thing is available all over the place. You can Google for it and find it. That makes a huge difference when you're saying, oh, Pump 6 is, exists as a collection, as an object. That makes a huge difference. But beyond that, it's also, it's also a statement that seems to, there's, there's something of a synergistic effect that says, hey, once you're published, you exist, and therefore you should be published more. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's actually kind of exciting because it means the editors are paying attention to what I'm doing now in a way that they weren't paying attention before necessarily. Um, and they have a really good opportunity to understand where I'm coming from with my writing and stuff. So it means that when I go out with a new novel, which I am working on, um, it means that there's, the door has been pushed open to a certain extent. And, and tell us a little bit about your new novel. The new novel is set in the same same world as as Yellow Card Man and the Calorie Man, set in a future Bangkok that's sort of surrounded by rising sea levels, and the it's all about essentially. I guess the best way to characterize it is it's a it's a political spy novel, all focused on genetically modified foods. Everybody's trying to find a seed bank and trying to find new genetic diversity, and it's cloak and dagger stuff, but with grain. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things I really liked about the, the setup for this world uh, in uh, The Calorie Man was that you had this, no this notion that the rise of the monoculture was quite coincidentally, and I'm putting uh, quote marks around that word, tied to some plagues, plant plagues that had taken out some stuff. And this really reminds me of some of the, the thoughts that people have about that um, the rise of computer viruses is directly tied to the rise of the, the fortunes of antivirus software companies. Right. Why not release your own viruses? Because it'll build more demand for your product. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's definitely a certain level of that sort of cynicism built into, the, built into the world. You know, it's interesting. I think at the point when you're, you're a company that, that's thinking always about making more money, that more, more, more hunger... You know, it's driven by public markets, it's driven by stock markets, things like that, that, that unrelenting demand for return on investment. I, I think there's, there's, there's really no other mitigating sort of attitude that says what's ethical versus unethical. If you've got a company that say, I want to make Roundup Ready corn, the whole purpose of that is both to do two things. I mean, it's really interesting. Both we want to make it so you're buying our corn stock here, but we're also going to sell you the pesticides. So it's, this is a two-hit deal. Now, is this good for the, the world as a whole to have even more pesticides dumped on the food that we already have? You know, and this isn't this isn't a holistic sort of thinking process. This is, hey, look, we've got two products. Here's a way to marry them together and make more money. And so the idea that, yeah, okay, well, you know what? Nobody's buying our grain right now, but, well, if we wipe everything else out, they will. It's just another sort of cynical decision. I, and I, I'm wondering, Jeremy, 
Will you be publishing the novel? How have how has the, how has the, the agent aspect of the novel gone? I mean, did well, you that's ha- that's the one thing that we've been carefully not discussing all weekend long. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's actually we're very, playing footsie. <laughs> it's very very invigorating to kind of like put Paolo's work out there in the marketplace and then you know get an email from a New York publisher saying, "Hey, I I." heard about this collection. Could you send me a comp copy? Because I found it, it seems like really interesting. And I know her back thought is, and I should be paying attention and maybe trying to get a novel from him. But these are my colleagues and they're also my friends and I'm happy to send it forward because, you know, if the right offer comes along and from a large publisher who, you know, can make Paolo into a bestseller as opposed to a poor selling mid-list writer, well, that's the evaluation that his agent has to make and I'm perf- and God bless her. Right. <laughs> and I'm perfectly happy to see Paolo succeed because it will have been a success for me. I will have been able to, you know, help foist, you know, my perceptions of quality and goodness and great writing, you know, to a larger marketplace. And if, you know, Paolo can make that leap to a larger publisher, well, that's good on me. I've, I've had other writers who, you know, have had made, you know, made me a stepping stone. And I'm perfectly happy happy to see that success. If you know there is another level and there's a place for them in you know New York publishing, I'm happy to see that. Paolo, when you were writing short stories, did that enable you to get an agent? I mean, that seems like uh, <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> well, um, except it, for the awards. It the it's the awards. That's that's what changes the whole equation. Um, and I my career is 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 there are only a couple of other writers who've had this sort of a career where you only write a few stories and and then suddenly there's a lot of attention being paid to them and so that that dynamic is is uh, a, it's a strange dynamic so essentially what happened though was that much the way that that William Gibson predicted really was hey you write enough stories that somebody respects you and then they'll take a risk with you um, and that's that's basically that yeah I, I sold enough stories and those got enough attention critically um, they got the award nominations they won the awards and then an agent was like hey you know what I really like your writing and you know I don't think she could have ever she could have ever noticed that until I'd reached a certain level. Um, and some of that is just, I think that I had to reach a certain level of quality in my writing. I think in my earlier books, I wasn't there yet. And then maybe I finally started to nail some things down. And so. Now, not all of your early work was in science fiction genre. Do you think that your future work will continue to be just in the science fiction genre? What I would really, what I would really like is to write stories that use science fiction tools and that people, an intelligent reader in any genre, would get and enjoy. When I think about writers who I deeply respect, I think about people like George Orwell, I think about people like Aldous Huxley, um, I think about people like Ursula Le Guin, and they're saying things in their writing that is Certainly, there are, are genre qualities to everything that they do, but there's also, they're writing about us, they're writing about now, they're writing about the world around them, and they're writing about things that matter now, and and so I'd sort of like, I'd sort of, I guess I'd sort of like to have my cake and eat it too. I'd like to write genre stories that people read outside of the genre, because um, 
honestly, I think that there's a bigger dialogue than just, oh, is this science fiction or is this literary fiction? I think that there's, there's, I think that there's crossovers and melding points for, for writing that don't have to be just in one camp or the other. And Jeremy, as a, a publisher, you published mostly genre fiction. Do you think you'll stray outside and, and publish literary fiction ever? Well, I, you know, kind of spend my reading hours reading across genre boundaries, you know. and everything. It is literary fiction. We are writing literary fiction. Well, some of us are. Some of us are writing fun, you know, entertaining, you know, adventure stories. Too. From a purely commercial <coughs> standpoint, literary fiction, I feel, is its own commercial category. And genres are commercial categories to help market them. That's how I see it from a business side of things. And so every time I read a great mainstream novel by that guy who's out of print and underserved, I always, like, you know, want to start up a mainstream fiction imprint to, you know, do the other books that I really love. And, you know, given a little bit of success, you know, you probably will see, you know, me opening up a mainstream import, imprint before too long. Um, just because there's books, you know, in those marketing categories that aren't being published, that should be published, that have an audience, you know, that they're not reaching. And so, you know, that's part of my proselytizing. Good books. Good books exist in every genre. Quality, important works that appeal to people, you know, transcend these commercial categories. So, yeah. We've been speaking with Paolo Bacigalupi and Jeremy Lassen. Paolo Bacigalupi's new book is Pump Six. It's published by Jeremy Lassen's Nightshade Books. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you. It's great to be here. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.